as you are being seated, please turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Tuesday morning, we are uh, flying out for Israel. I just want to ask you to to pray for our trip. We're going with about 40 other uh, members and friends of Grace Bible Church. I ask you to pray for safety in the the Middle East. It's always kind of a... um, challenging area of the world, always has been for thousands of years. Um, you know, one of the things that we talk to the group about is if you want to wait till it's safe in the Middle East, don't go. It's not going to happen. Uh, so we're getting ready for the trip, getting prepared, and I went to my bank to tell them that I'd be traveling out of the country, going to Israel, and they asked what route I was going. And I said, I'm going through Florida. It's interesting because they weren't worried about uh, Israel, but they said, don't use your debit card in Florida. <laughs> Apparently they have a lot of identity theft in Florida. And that got me thinking about this whole concept of identity theft, which is really not identity theft, right? They, they want to steal certain financial information, take your money. But it got me thinking, what if there was actually such a thing as identity theft? What if you came home one day and someone else was sitting at your seat at the dining room table, you know, pretending to be husband to your wife and father to your kids and said, no, you're not Brian Fisher. I am. And then you went to work and found yourself locked out and your keys were gone. And the door was locked and your identity, your actual identity was stolen. Now that would be bad. I find that frequently, frequently, Christians live their lives as if there is such a thing as spiritual identity theft. That we could believe and be identified with Jesus Christ and then somehow do something that causes us to become unidentified with Christ. Unsealed by the Spirit, unregenerated, unjustified, unredeemed, unadopted. That we could have a relationship with God that would change our fundamental identity. Now we would be called Christians. Christ ones, followers of Christ. And then something could happen to disrupt all that and absolutely destroy our identity. And I find that so many Christians live in that insecure world in their relationship with God. But security is fundamental to human growth. It's it's fundamental to the growth in every relationship. It's fundamental to to growth as a person, to becoming whole. Uh, You may remember from your high school psychology courses, Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. Remember that? right? And the very base is what? Biological needs, right? You need food and shelter. But interestingly, the next layer uh, is not love and respect, self-actualization. It's actually just safety and security. Safety and security. It is fundamental to the way that God has made us as human beings. We need safety and security. And really, in this world, the only place we find it is in our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now, we've been studying the ministry of the Spirit, and I want to just review for you quickly here, what we have looked at. And I'm going to throw in a few other concepts that Paul uses in other places as well. Uh, The Spirit is the one who regenerates us. And Christ paid the penalty for our sin, but the Spirit is the one who actualizes that and causes us to be born again, who baptizes us into Christ. That is, places us into Christ and Christ into us and ministers the presence of Christ to us by indwelling us permanently. It is the Spirit who adopts us into the family of God so that we become his children, his sons and daughters. It is the Spirit who seals us over until the day of redemption, guaranteeing our ultimate salvation. The Spirit fills us, we are told in Ephesians, so that we can be empowered to live lives that are like Jesus Christ. 
It is the spirit who testifies to our spirit or reminds our spirit that we belong to God. So we're in, when we're in the midst of troubles and difficulties, we can cry out with confidence, Daddy, Abba, Father, save me, rescue me. Now chapter 8, Paul is going to add one more ministry of the spirit. That is that the spirit actually prays for us, intercedes for us. Read with me in chapter 8, verse 26. Paul says, in the same way, okay, just as the Spirit gives us hope and orients our minds toward the future and not toward the present, in the same way, he says, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, uh, why do we need intercession? Remember the setting here in Romans 8. Paul's been talking about suffering. And when we're suffering, we wonder, God, have you forgotten me? God, are are you unaware? Do you not actually see all? God, are you not able? God, are you not willing to do something on my behalf? And insecurity can set in in our relationship with God because we're in the midst of suffering. And Paul says the Spirit intercedes for us. In the same way, also, the Spirit helps our weakness. And what is our weakness? Our weakness is we don't know how to pray as we should. When you are suffering, how do you pray? God, get me out now, right? I mean, that's, that's what we pray first and last. God, rescue me right now. And what Paul says is, when we are in the midst of suffering and difficult circumstances, we really don't know how to pray. We don't know, what God, what is your will actually in this? Is it that I remain under this? Is it that you rescue me from this? What is your will? We don't know how to pray. And that is our weakness. And so it says the Spirit comes alongside us and helps us, which is a a word with beautiful imagery. It means to take hold of instead of with. Okay, To take hold of instead of with. In other words, we're in the midst of suffering and we are holding on to it ourselves. We're trying to solve the issue ourselves. And so instead of that, we need the Spirit to come alongside with us. It was used of uh, Moses. You remember when Moses was uh, in the wilderness and he alone was judging all of the 12 tribes of Israel and his father-in-law came and he saw that and he said, Moses, you're killing yourself and I hate to tell you, you're killing the people as well. It is too great for you. It's overwhelming. It's too much, Moses. You can't handle it. It's wearing you out. It's wearing the people out. So appoint those who can help you. They can take hold of it instead of you alone together with you. I remember when I was really little, I still have this very vivid memory of my dad moving our piano out of our apartment. We lived in married student housing when we were going to, my dad was going to graduate school and we lived on the top floor, second floor, and we had a big piano, one of those tall pianos. I'm not a piano guy, I don't know what it's called, upright, right? Okay, yeah, we're getting a few nods from music people. Yeah, a big, but it was big. I just remember it was really big when I was that small. And we had these steep stairs that would go down, a narrow landing. You'd have to turn, sharp turn, and then go down. Well, my dad's not a little guy. He's a pretty big guy. But there was a, a really big friend he had. And you know where they put him? They put him on the bottom, right? He got the big piano going, and he was underneath it like this. And I thought that was a great image of what the Spirit does for us. Because we have pianos that need to be moved in our lives, right? And it's overwhelming, 
You cannot move that piano by yourself. You have to participate. You're not a completely passive agent, but you cannot move that piano. And what you need is the spirit to take hold of instead of you alone together with you. And it's the spirit who needs to do the heavy lifting. The spirit is the one who is on the bottom. Paul says, in our weakness, we don't know how to pray. And so that's when the spirit prays on our behalf for us, together with us. And notice what he says. He says, the spirit himself uh, intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Charles Cranfield wrote probably the best commentary on Romans, and he said this, the very fact that we are now suffering with him so far from calling the reality of our airship into question is a pledge of our being glorified with him hereafter. In other words, when we're suffering, we're thinking, God, have you forgotten? Instead, God's saying, no, you're identified with Christ, and this is the pattern of the life of Christ. He suffered and then he was glorified. And when he suffered, he called out and he depended upon whom? Upon the Spirit of God. And this will be the pattern in your life as well. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Paul says, I suffered first. Christ suffered first. I'm following the pattern of Christ, and so you will suffer first. For to you it has been granted, literally for to you it has been graced. We think of grace as all of these wonderful things that we want. Paul says, no, part of the grace of God in your life is that you also suffer. To live according to the pattern of Christ. It's not evidence that God has forgotten you. It's evidence that you are identified with Jesus Christ, particularly when you are suffering for walking with Christ. And it is in those moments that you need the Spirit to come alongside you. And Paul says the Spirit prays for you passionately. In literally words that are unutterable. They can't even be spoken. So they're they're groanings. It doesn't mean they're unintelligible. God knows what the Spirit is saying. But the Spirit is so phenomenally passionate about you. That when you are groaning, the Spirit is groaning. I, I find that almost impossible to understand. Right now, there's, there's a, a divine conversation going on about you. And when you are hurting and groaning, the Spirit is hurting and groaning along with you. The difference is, when the Spirit prays, the Spirit prays accurately, appropriately. And we say, God, rescue, get us out, get us out, get us out. But the Spirit always prays specifically and according to the will of God. Notice what he says here at the end of verse 27. He who searches the hearts, that is the Father, knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Spirit always prays the right thing, even when we don't pray the right thing. Years ago, there was a young man who started to live a really wild life. And his mother prayed for him that he would stop his sin. Because it was getting worse and worse and worse. And then he decided he's going to leave their small town. He's going to go to a big city where he could get into more trouble. Where there was more sin he could participate in. And she prayed and prayed and prayed. God, don't allow my son to go to the city because his life will get worse. God, rescue him. But he went to the city anyway. And you know what happened? His life got worse and worse and worse. He got into deeper sin. And when he finally hit bottom, he turned to Jesus Christ. 
The mother's name was Monica. Her son's name was Augustine. He became St. Augustine of Hippo. He became one of the leaders of the church, ministered to many, and he ministered out of this experience, out of the depths of his sin. Now, his mom didn't know how she should pray. And parents, if you've ever had children who are going different directions, how do you pray? God, just stop it. Rescue, rescue, rescue. But we don't know all that God is doing. We just don't know. Okay? This is Paul's second point. God is also, as a father, working good for us in every circumstance. Read with me verse 28. And we know when we don't know how to pray, we know that God is still working. We know that he is causing all things to work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. These whom he justified, he also glorified. Who does this promise apply to? Have you ever memorized it, claimed it for yourself? Is it for you? Paul says, uh, to those who love God. Does that mean it only applies to us when we're actually loving God? But when we're not loving God so much, we're making our own choices, is this not applicable to us? You know, Paul normally talks about God's love for us. This is the only place in Romans he talks about our love for God. And I think the next phrase explains what he means. To those who are called according to his purpose. In other words, he's talking about believers. Those who have been invited into a relationship with God and have believed. That's what Paul means by called. And so he's talking about us. In our good times and in our bad times, God is working all things together for good. What does he mean by all things? Just the stuff we want? Now, actually, in the context, Paul is really focused upon the stuff we don't want. Paul is talking about our suffering. He's talking about the things that were done to us. Maybe the harsh, cutting words that you grew up with. Maybe somebody took your money. Maybe you were abused. Paul's saying God can cause all things to work together for good. Maybe the things not that others did to you, but the the things that you did to yourself, the consequences of your own sin. Paul's saying God causes all things, not some things, all things. God is working them together for good. Now, he's not saying God is causing the bad things. He's saying God is taking the bad things and working good from the bad things. Okay? That's Paul's point. Well, let me give you a biblical illustration. Turn back to Genesis. Keep your place here in Romans with me for just a moment. Turn to Genesis chapter 50. Uh, you remember Jake, uh, Joseph's story. Bad things were done to Joseph. He always lived an upright life, and yet uh, his brother's decided that um, they needed to get rid of him. He was the favorite son, and so they threw him into a pit. The oldest brother, Reuben, left, the one who was a little bit responsible. And when he was gone, uh, some Amalekites came by, and they sold Joseph into slavery. He became a slave, put up on an auction block, and sold into slavery in Egypt. He became a a servant in a household. Then he was uh, rising and doing well and serving well, still a slave, but doing well comfortably. And then uh, a false accusation was made against him by Potiphar's wife, and he was thrown into prison. There he is, languishing in prison. Eventually, God rescued him, and he he rises through the ranks. He becomes uh, number two in the Egyptian government. 
And then it is that God sends the family down in the midst of famine. And because of Joseph's wisdom, there is grain, there is food in Egypt. And Joseph's family, Jacob's family, his brothers are all rescued. Joseph reveals himself to them. And they're frightened, they're afraid, they think he's going to kill them, but he doesn't. He lets them live. But in their minds, he's only letting them live until dad dies. And when dad dies, we're done, right? So Jacob died, and so they came to Joseph, and they said, please, now don't kill us. Now that dad is gone, don't take your vengeance upon us, because they knew what they had done was wrong. Notice Joseph's words. Verse 18, it says, Then his brothers also came and fell down before him, and they said, Behold, we are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. And notice, Joseph doesn't say, what you did to me is okay. What you did to me is good. He doesn't call evil good. He said, you, you meant evil. I got it. I knew who you were. I understand that was evil and you meant evil and your intention was evil, but God chose to use that evil and make good from it. That is the beauty of the sovereignty of God. We're not calling evil good and we're not taking this verse and just slapping it on like a band-aid every time somebody is hurting. What we are saying here is this is an amazing gift to us from God. In his sovereignty, he can take something that is evil, even evil and broken that was done to us or we did to ourselves and he can create some good for, from it. For Joseph, it was the physical rescue of his entire family. What is it from us, for us? What does Paul say? Turn back to Romans chapter 8. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. What is the good? The good is the purpose of God. And what is God's purpose? He says it is to be conformed into the very image of Jesus Christ. It's conformity to the image of Christ. I'm going to read to you a couple quotes here. These are from um, Christian speakers. There was a, an article came out in Time Magazine a few years ago, and they did a poll and then wrote an article based on this poll. According to their poll, 61% of Christians believe God wants people to be prosperous. Catch that number? 61% of Christians, people call themselves Christians, Believe God's purpose in your life is to make you prosperous. That's God's goal for your life. Where do we get this idea? Well, you hear it from um, Christian teachers every day. One speaker said, Who would want to get in on something where you're miserable, poor, broken, ugly? And you just have to muddle through until you get to heaven. I believe God wants to give us nice things. Another said, Some people say it's about peace, joy, and love. No, it's about money. His thinking is it's about money because you can't have peace if you don't have money, right? Another said, God wants to increase you financially by giving you promotions, fresh ideas, and creativity. God wants you to go further than your parents. I guess your parents are, wow. Well, sure, God wants more. Another says this here's how you make it happen. First, make a clear cut goal, then draw a mental picture, vivid and graphic, to visualize success. Then incubate it into reality. Finally, speak it into existence through the creative power of the spoken word. Okay, believe it. Name it. Claim it. Because this is what God wants for you. Now, I didn't give you names because I'm not interested in trashing specific personalities. So I spread it out. I've got a male. I've got a female. I've got a black, a white, and an Asian. I've got an old and a young. Okay? You get it from every sector of uh, Christianity. Because there is something about us. We want our ears tickled. Right? So Paul says... Second Timothy, 
We want somebody to tell us, yeah, God is here just for you to make your life easy. Paul says, no, God's purpose in your life is to conform you to the image of Christ. And how was Christ conformed, so to speak, himself? Well, even Christ was conformed through suffering. Hebrews chapter 12, it says, Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. So when we are struggling and we're trying to move forward, he says, fix your eyes on Jesus, who's the author or the leader, the originator and the perfecter of faith. And here's his example, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus didn't enjoy the cross. (laughs) Jesus prayed in the garden to get out of the cross. And the cross was an injustice, it wasn't evil, but Jesus chose to endure the cross because he was looking beyond the cross. And God will do exactly the same thing in our lives. And we are fooling ourselves and we're doing a disservice to others if we say suffering is not a normal part of the Christian life. It's the pattern. This is part of God's purpose and part of God's will because through it, he conforms us to the image of Jesus Christ when we suffer well. But when we're suffering and we're, we're thinking, God, may, have you abandoned me, God? Have you forgotten about me? Are you not powerful? The answer is no. Look at the cross. This is what I did with my son and this is what I'm doing with you. Because I'm creating a family. Jesus is the firstborn. He's the preeminent son and he suffered and now you are sons and daughters and you will go through the same pattern in life. Again, taking you to Hebrews chapter two, verse 10, it says it was fitting, it was appropriate, it was, it was necessary for him, for whom and through whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, bringing many of us into the family of God to be conformed to the image of Christ to have renewed bodies, remember we talked about last week, in a a renewed world, a body that's not subject to frustration in relationships, but also disease and decay and ultimately death, in a redeemed world where everything is set right and perfect, that is God is bringing a whole family into glory. In doing so, it was fitting or necessary to make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through his own sufferings. It's the same pattern for the life of Christ, Paul says. So God is making a family, and he's doing it certainly, securely. It will come to pass. Verse 30. These brethren, this family, whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. These whom he justified, he also glorified. And when we get into Romans chapter 9, I promise we will spend more time on predestination. We're not going to talk about it this morning. What it means fundamentally is that Before eternity, God had a plan and he marked out people to be a part of his family. And those whom he marked out, he called. He invited them into relationship with him. When they believed, he declared them righteous. He justified them. And those whom he justified, he says he also glorified. Notice, he says glorified in the past tense. Are you glorified now? No, you're not. Why does Paul say it in the past tense? Well, it's because it is so absolutely certain that it will occur. That Paul can talk about it in the past tense. It's like somebody asking you to do something and you say, it's as good as done. It's done. God says, I have justified you. Consider glorification done. It's guaranteed 
the outcome will happen. It is secure. Why? Because of what Christ has done for us. Christ has done the heavy lifting on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins so that we could have eternal life. Read with me in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? The son has secured glory for us because there is no greater power. Do we have enemies? Yes, we do. We have Satan and his demonic forces. We have the world. We have uh, other humans. We have our own flesh. We have enemies, but there is no greater power. And if God is for us, really, 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 who's against us? Okay, compared to God, who can stand up? David frequently echoed this theme. Psalm 27, he says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? It's rhetorical. No one. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Man can touch me physically and even emotionally, but cannot rupture my relationship with God that lasts forever. It is eternally secure. It can't touch my soul. There is no greater power. Second, there is no accusation that can be leveled against us that can stick. Verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. God is the judge, and he's not accepting any charges against us. Satan is our accuser, we're told. Remember the scene in Job in the courtroom where an accusation is brought? Satan brings an accusation against Job, and God is the judge. Well, in our courtroom scene, God is the judge and Satan is bringing accusation. But then we have our own defense attorney, our advocate, that is Jesus Christ. And he says, no, not guilty. I've declared that one righteous. And in fact, I'm working all to good because of what I've accomplished for that one. I saw the most amazing illustration of this when I went to um, Guatemala. First time I went, I was a college student after my freshman year. And I met a, a woman there. Her name was Buena. She was the, the um, maid for one of the missionary couples. And she was, um, she was deformed. She had, she had some birth defects. And her face was severely misshapen. Her prospects, from a human perspective, for getting married, having children, moving on, were, were pretty bleak. But sweet, sweet lady. Godly woman. Years later, I went back and I took a group of college students with me to Guatemala. And I, Buena was still there. She was working for this missionary couple. And she had a little son. Her name was, his name was David. And I, and I, I asked the couple, I said, okay, so did, did Buena get married? The missionary pulled me aside. I said, no, she was raped. She's raped. The man was caught. And he's, he's in jail now. And I, I just, it, it just had to stop for a minute. And I, and I watched the interaction because David would come home every day and he would jump into his mom's lap and he would stare into her face, hug her and kiss her. It was just overwhelming. It was, it was beauty. It was, it was amazing because in his eyes, she was, she was lovely. And we're not calling evil good. The rape was evil. But God created beauty. Satan can take beauty and only destroy. God takes evil and creates good. 
because of the power of the work of Christ. Okay? That's what really gives us the power to become healthy, whole, strong, people who can forgive and release. Because we genuinely trust, even when we're suffering, God can take this. We're not calling evil good, but we're trusting God to make good from evil, even when we don't see it. Because of what Christ has done for us. No greater power than God, and God is for us. There's no accusation. Uh, he says there's no condemnation. Who can, con- who can condemn us? Who can put us under the sentence of sin and death again? The answer is no one. No one. Read with me. Verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Man, there it is. Trinitarian conversation about you right now. Spirit and Father and Son. And the Spirit is helping your weakness. You don't know how to pray. And when accusation is brought, the Son is pleading your case, saying, no, I died for that, and I was raised. God proved that he accepted my sacrifice. Get out, Satan. No accusation, no condemnation, no separation. Verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? This is Paul's list that he used in 2 Corinthians 11. He was not a stranger to suffering. He was not a stranger to persecution. He says, no, None of these things that others do to me, they cannot separate me. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. This is the psalmist in Psalm 44 who's suffering and struggling and wondering, God, have you forgotten me? Paul says, no, this is the normal experience of followers of God. Paul experienced it. David experienced it. Christ experienced it. We will. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yeah, but Brian, what if I do something really bad? Christ died for mm, your easy sins. (laughs) Fortunately, no. Christ died for all your sins. Even the ones you don't know yet that you're going to commit. I doubt anyone's going to walk out of here and live sinless until they die. Jesus paid it all. He took that certificate of debt consisting of decrees against you, every single one of them, and he nailed it to the cross. He paid the price. Not just the little ones, but even the big ones. What if I walk away from God? Can I separate myself? Notice the last phrase. He's, he's summing it all up. He can't think of anything else to say. So he says, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's created? Everything but God. And God won't release you because he's faithful. Remember, our image here is of a heavenly father who loves his children and he disciplines them when they go wrong. But he never releases them from his grip. All else is created. That includes Satan. It includes all human adversaries. It includes demonic forces. It includes you yourself. Well, Brian, but I'm free. And a free person can do whatever they want. I may choose to say, no, I don't want it anymore. I'm going to give salvation back. You're misunderstanding freedom. Okay, Freedom means being able to choose within your nature. The available set of choices consistent with your nature. God is free. 
God is the most free being that exists, and yet God cannot do anything because he cannot act contrary to his nature. He cannot sin. He cannot lie. He cannot release you from his grip because he made a promise, right? And so as a free being, you can't just do anything. You can only act consistently with your nature. Your nature was changed. The moment you believed in Jesus Christ, you were redeemed. You were justified. You were adopted. You were sealed. You were regenerated. You now belong to God, and you cannot make a choice to unjustify, unseal, unredeem. Isn't that amazing? You belong to God forever because you're secure in him, not because of what you do. You are resting in the faithfulness of God. Let me give you one human illustration. King Solomon, gifted with the the greatest wisdom of, of any man probably who's ever lived, And yet he didn't always apply his wisdom. He was told three things. He said, Solomon, for kings to reign well, don't multiply horses and chariots, don't multiply gold and silver, don't multiply foreign wives. You know what Solomon did? He said, I need more of all three, right? I need horses and chariots because I need military strength because I trust in that. I need gold and silver because wealth can get me out of a jam. And I need foreign wives because they create alliances with these nations around me. And God said, don't do it because if you do, they'll lead your heart astray. And what I need is your heart, Solomon. But he married these women. And what happened to him? His heart was pulled astray. And so he started worshiping foreign gods. He even set up altars to foreign gods in the temple area, even moved some of them into the temple itself. And so when Solomon died, he had lived as an alcoholic, he had lived as a sex addict, and he had lived as an idolater. He didn't finish well. And so what I'm saying is for believers, I think Solomon was a genuine believer. He wrote three books of the Bible, but he didn't finish well. For believers, there are consequences to our sin But there is not the consequence of losing salvation. For Solomon, he didn't finish well. His family was fractured. The nation split. There were consequences for him personally, for his family, but also for everyone that his life affected, the entire nation. It never reunited, ever. And there are consequences when we sin. In other words, Paul is reminding us of security, not so that we would go out and sin, but so that we would live grateful lives that were safe in God. And let me get really practical for a moment. If you come into my office and you say, Brian, I need assurance. I'm living in sin and I don't want to stop my sin, but I want you to give me assurance that I have eternal life. That's not my job. Okay, that's not my job. If you're living in sin and you don't want to relinquish your sin, you know the first thing I'm going to do? I'm going to present the gospel again. Because I don't know. I don't know if you've trusted Christ. I don't know. But the fact remains, if you once trusted Christ, you are sealed forever. Okay? Hear, me, hear me accurately. I'm not saying that's an excuse to sin. But I am saying we are that secure. No matter what sin we do. If you have once trusted Christ, it is not your faith that saves you. Remember, we're going all the way back to Romans 3. It's not your faith that saves you. God saves you through faith. And when he takes you and you belong to him, you belong to him forever. And will you fail at times? Yes. Will you sin? Yes. Are you secure? Absolutely. 
And the reason that God gives us that security is because that's the context in which we grow and mature and become whole. Because God is a heavenly father and he's perfect. And he will love you faithfully for your entire existence. And nothing can break you out of the grip of God once you belong to him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would embrace this security, not as an excuse to sin, but out of gratitude we would turn around and live lives that are fully devoted to you because you are faithful to us. I thank you, Father, that even when we are unfaithful, you are faithful and we are secure. And I pray, Father, for each and every one of us, especially people who may not have experienced this in their earthly life, the families that they grew up in, that they would be able to experience this security with you. Father, I thank you for the wonderful gift of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that secures us forever. It's in his powerful and precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you, and I'll see you in a couple weeks.